Hello. Hey, hey. How you going, guys? My God, we're back again. This is Jay Jovi. Sammy Hard on. And you're listening to the 80s montage, of course. We're doing the second part of our Stock Ake, Stock Aitken and Waterman special. Mmm. Absolutely. Did you like the first I one, guys? Wait. Well, that's what I want to know. I mean, there are some artists on this show that people absolutely love. I'm yeah. happy to do a Banana Rama show. I'm happy to do a Kylie Minogue show. I'm happy to do a Donna Summer show. Let us know right into the80smontage.com and start communicating what you want, guys, because we're here for you. Um, you know, we don't just like the sound of our own voices. Sometimes we can. But you guys need to give us some – I'd love to do – I, I was watching heaps of Banana Rama today and yeah. I would love to do a show on them. I think yeah. that would be incredible. And this and the the stock cake and waterman years for Banana Rama were really interesting because it sort of um, they they became their most popular, like their, their most sort of successful in terms of sales. But it also you know ultimately led to their demise. So it must have been like a very um, very sort of volatile time, you know. Lots, lots of lots of um, lots of conflict, which is always interesting. Oh, I nearly spilt my beer everywhere. What are you drinking oh, over there? We're, uh, we're water. Uh, we're actually ah, oh, that's a bit boring. We're doing um, we're doing this remotely tonight. We have been um, I have been going across town to the studio, but um, yeah, it looks like the good old COVID has sort of risen its head again. So we're being careful. We are absolutely. Yeah. Victoria's had some horrible stats that's of late. Right. That's you right. Know. But yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed. The uh, first episode of Stock Aiken and Waterman. And we've just played our Banana Rama track. I love that track. Out of like they've got they've got um, from the from this period, they do um, have a few tracks that kind of remind me of each other. You know, the Stock Aiken tracks do sort of um, all sound like they're like, you know, they're, they're quite similar. They're quite similar. Yeah, but, yeah, um, they are. But, you know, there definitely was a Stock Aiken and Waterman sound and, and all and all saw tracks sound similar, you know. Yeah. Um, so this is this is one that really pumps. This is one that sort of hits the nail on the head. So so um, Banana Rama, we talk, of course, of uh, Sarah, Siobhan and Karen. I love Banana Rama. Yeah. I do too. You, you guys know that I do a, uh, a, a male tribute act called Mananarama. So yes. I've had a lot of time to be watching these clips and listening to these songs. Absolutely. Um, it was actually it was actually the girls that were sort of finishing off their album True Confessions, which was released in May. Uh, might, mightn't have been May 86, but it might have... Might have been sort of getting getting finished towards the end of '85, and it was released in '86. They they sort of approached saw they approached uh, Peter Waterman, Pete Waterman, and um, wanted to do do a collaboration or two. And on this album, on True Confession, True Confessions, they ended up doing my favourite Banana Rama track, which is Trick of the Night. Which is sort of like a slow tempo when it's about rent boys. You know that one, Sammy? Yeah. Oh God, it's my favourite. But isn't that Stock Aiken and Waterman? It is, baby. That's what I said. Yeah. So okay. They, they, so what yeah. was the difference with True Confessions 
Doing their so, last bit and then collaborating? I didn't get that. So it wasn't all written by Stock Aitken. They okay. were sort of finishing off the album and they thought, oh, cool, we'll do one or two collabs and, and, and we'll, go to, we'll go to those guys. Ah, was Swain and Jolly involved with this or something? Yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. okay, I'm yeah. with you now, yep. Yeah. So um, and they thought, oh, they, they actually, Bananarama loved um, Spin Me Around like a record by Dead or Alive. So that that's what actually drew them to Stock Aiken and Waterman. Mm. And um, they wanted to do, Banana Rama wanted to do, and it was their idea, it was the girls' idea, not management or anything. It was mm. their idea to do Venus, which is like an yeah. old 50s track or 60s track or something. It's an yeah, old Shocking track. Blue, Shocking Blue. Yeah. Released it. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and... Saw weren't convinced. Like they no, weren't they convinced. weren't. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, but the girls really insisted, and sort of they they might have even sort of performed it for them and stuff, and and so it it sort of they thought you know they they know what they're talking about. They're sort of awesome chicks, and they got on. They got along with them really well. They got along with them um, from the outset. They liked how tough they were, and it was a sing- similar kind of thing with Mel and Kim, where you got um, sort of mm. a grouper. You know, tough chicks that were a lot of fun. Mm. Um, and so Bananarama just insisted that it would be a great dance track and, and they, they sort of worked um, worked to the mould of Spin Me Around like, like a record and it ended up being, um, I think it went to number one in six countries including USA and Australia yeah, um, and New Zealand. But it only went to number eight in the UK because it was like a little bit of it was a, a bit of a departure in sound for Bananarama. Yes. Um, yeah. Quite poppy, and that sort of you know that kind of high energy sound was definitely new territory, and it, it may have distanced some of their older fans. So um, yeah. yeah, interesting that it. Um, See, I remember the time this single came out. Mm. I was at that perfect age where. I remember everything in the video working properly. Yeah. They looked incredible. The song, yeah. I had this on 12 inch. I went to the hairdressers and got my hair cut like Karen. And oh, it was wow. like, it was such a big inspiration to me. And I love these girls because they're just not serious chicks. They're more like rock chicks where they yeah, drink they the ass off anyone. Yeah, yeah. And they don't give a fuck and they'll root you if they want to root you. You know what I mean? Oh, they were those type of chicks. Yeah, and yeah. The funniest, I, I was watching a couple of interviews today and the funniest thing I heard Karen say about a little boy was he does the band rider in the room now. He's got the job of doing the band rider. He supplies the grog. And that's just fucking what Bananarama are about, isn't it, you know? That's hilarious. He probably, He's look, he got probably that d- job. He probably does it to sort of keep a, you know, keep a little bit of an eye on them as well. Well, because, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, those those girls can sort of put away a fair bit. Mm. But um, uh, yeah. So that was sort of that. Venus, I think, is their most successful hit. Um, uh, look, Trick of the Night didn't do as well, um, but it's my favourite Banana Rama song. I love it. And it was also mixed with um, Say I'm Your Number One as well. There was a version yeah. of Trick of the Night and Say I'm Your Number One, which was really lovely as well. I loved that version of it. Um, yeah. Trick of the Night. Oh, look, 
I loved that and I also loved more than physical. I thought that was fantastic as well. But that might yeah. have been the album after. Uh, the remember. next, yeah, yeah, it might have been. I'm not quite sure. We'll check on that. So, so talking about the album afterwards, they 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 released the follow up with sort of look. They had such a great sort of experience with uh, Saw and you know great success and everything. They were like, fuck, okay, let's do an album with them. So the entire next album, which is called Wow, with an yeah. exclamation mark. Um, is done totally with um, Stock Aiken and Waterman. So they sort of wrote everything, they produced everything. Um, I don't think there's any or at least many exceptions to that. I think they wrote the entire thing. Uh, and that album went to number one in Australia. The yeah. whole album went to number one. And this was really big and really commercial. Like um, True Confessions, because it was sort of not all done by Saw, it was a little bit like, you know, the older Bananarama. But More this Than Physical was on True Conf- Confessions, just so was people it? know. Okay. Mm. All right. Mm. Nice. All right. Cool. So um, on Wow, uh, they had the tra- – they had I Heard a Rumour. They had Love in the First Degree, which we opened the show with. They had I Want You Back. Mm. Um, and they actually, they actually had um, like a mega mix, which was something that um, Saw really pioneered the the sort of mega mix. Like you know, they were releasing their own mega, mega mixes where they just sort of mix in all of the tracks off the albums. And um, yeah, they 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 did mix in remarkably well to each other, quite quite easily. Yeah, um, well, that's right. Yeah, nothing but, a um, click track can't do. That's right. But um, the album only went to number tw- – uh, peaked at number 26 in the UK. So interesting one again. They were very popular in Australia, Bananarama. Very popular. Yeah, Aussies love this stuff, you know, and yeah. we heard them we, – I mean, we heard them in the clubs. Um, personally, I, th- I love True Confessions a little bit more. I'm right, not a yeah. wow chick. Yeah. I'm not a wow – I think wow was a little bit of the same thing where you can tell – as you say, they wrote Trick of the Night and they wrote some fantastic trick, some fantastic songs that broke the, the medium up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you there on that one. Um, yeah, True Confessions would be one of my favourite of theirs. And even though sort of WoW has like a lot of hits, it's um it's a very it's a very commercial it's a very commercial album, and it it, it did sort of um, it did sort of turn them into a commercial band. And even yeah. though they were a pop act before, don't get me wrong, um, this sort of yeah they they lost all their punk in this one. Yeah, for, sure, for wow, sure. You know? Yep, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. But there you go. And and fun fact, well, not so fun. It was quite sad. But um, only a couple couple of months after uh, after it was released, wow, um, Siobhan Fay left. Yeah. It was just like in a completely different, you know, turned out to be just a completely different direction to what she wanted to go. She would, she wanted to do a lot of darker stuff. Yeah, um, of course. And then, you know, ultimately she would pop up the following year with Shakespeare's sister and um, the rest is history. That's an awesome band. Mm, absolutely. People were very excited about that. Yeah. Well, Siobhan is is the dark one of the three of them, you know. But yeah. when did they bring in the other thing? Straight away, Jackie. 
Rare Jackie. Yeah. Pre- look, pretty much straight away because they had a tour to do it. You, you know, they, they had to tour yeah. this album. So they brought yeah. her in for the tour and that was a world tour. Um, That's right because they had never toured with Siobhan until they did the last tour just gone a couple of years right. ago. They that's hadn't right. done anything with Siobhan. Yeah. So that was the yeah. big exciting thing. Yeah. And and sort of, you know, she did that tour and then and then left again, you know. And, but, I mean, um, they've been – they continued as a duo for years, ever since. Yeah. They never stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's you know it's no big deal. It's not like they had another falling out or anything. But but um, they they actually left on really good terms, and they're really really good friends. Um, mm. uh, yeah, I saw well, it. I saw a um, a thing they did with the Gypsy Kings today, which fucking oh, wow. confused the shit out of me. They did a <laughs> version of um, the uh, turn around the corner, run from up from here. A long train running. Yeah. I think that was the Doobie Brothers with the Gypsy Kings. And it was kind of really weird. I can hear that in my head. And I was like, why are we going here? I wasn't quite sure what they were trying to do. And Jackie was in it and they were doing all this Spanish dancing. But I'd I'd never seen that in my life. I was like, wow, what's going on here? Oh, shit. But I think oh. uh, Karen and Sarah got along so well and, I mean, they were school friends, yeah? Yeah, from five years old they were mates. Wow. Yeah. Um, and look, th- look, they all still are friends. They're, they're, they're all very fond of each other. There's no acrimony. Um, it's just one of those silly situations with um, the, the fans get really funny you know, like really possessive and they fucking make up shit and pretend they know them and, uh, you know, all of that kind of shit. But, um, you know, they just, they, they just have fun, those girls. They're, they're really cool. So, yeah. All right. So there we go. Um, well, your standout song for Bananarama. My standout What's song What's your for standout them? song? Trick of the Night or have you got another one? Um. Well, with Manorama, I loved performing Trick of the Night. It's a beautiful yep. song. They've got another beautiful sort of song. mid-tempo one. Oh, fuck. It's not called Oh, Fuck, but I'll, I'll, have, yeah. to, I'll have to look it, I'll have to look it up. Uh, yeah. I'll have to look it up. Um, fuck, I See, can't. See, I'm, yeah. cr- I'm, I'm a um, shy boy girl. I love shy boy. I've, you I know love that's really summer. difficult to sing? It sounds like a it sounds like a sort of you know bop song kind of like doo wop yeah. kind of fucking song. That is really yeah. difficult to get those harmonies. In fact, all of their songs, even though they sound, and and a lot of, a lot of the stuff that they do with Saw, um, is in unison, so they don't yes. do as many har- harmonies. That's um, right. But in terms of harmonics, generally, Banana Rama are like really really good. And um, they were surprisingly difficult to, to, you know, get your head around those songs. To make them sound good, you know, and, and get them accurate. But Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. let's keep moving. Now, you guys have met this next bloke, haven't you? I have, but Maddie has more. Our producer, a, Maddie, has. He's a filthy, dirty redhead. <laughs> he certainly is. He's actually <laughs> one of the coolest redheads I've ever met. Yeah. He's yeah. actually, I don't think he should be a redhead. He's just 
very cool and he's quite, quite, I don't know, he's, he's really confident, you know, like Is he we're really? talking about Rick Astley here. Oh, yeah, yes. incredibly confident. He Rick must Astley. Have a, he must have a big donger. Oh, I don't know about that. You know, I don't know if he's got that, but... Um, it's a red one this time. Yes. So we love... I love Rick Astley personally. I mean, Rick Astley, when my mum would do the housework, this album came out while she was doing the housework. So mm. I could not not listen to this album, you know. It was, <laughs> yeah, oh, it was for yeah. the, the housewives loved it. It must have been good then. You know what I mean? The housewives yeah. absolutely loved it. This wasn't for the gay community, just the gay community. It was for the housewives and it was for the kids. It was just an all-round single, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. Because <laughs> exactly. um, Pete hired him. There's two rumours about Rick and that he was the male boy and he was just doing the mail and then they went, hey, can yeah. you sing? I don't that know story about that. is that's not true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. it is yeah. not true. The story is was Pete a mu- went out. He was out, a muso. Yeah, he was. Pete went out and saw him perform with his band and hated the band but loved what he saw in Rick Astley. Were and they called FBI in, or something? Something like that, yeah. They yeah, were doing like some little theatre or some little back room somewhere. Up in the country. And yeah, yeah, one of those gigs, the country gigs. So basically I think... Pete saw in him straight away. But then they had him do some, um, what was he doing? He was doing something at Stockaken and Waterman. Well, he was doing, um, he was really interested in production. So, so, um, um, oh, mate, um, what's his name? Pete Waterman. No, the engineer. Pete Hammond. The guy I interviewed. Yeah. Yeah. What's his name? Pete Hammond. Pete Hammond. Sorry. Look, there's so many Pete's. I I just get confused sometimes. Um, Yeah, so there we go. I'm I'm interviewing Pete Hammond at the end end of this episode, towards the end. Um, And Pete Pete Hammond mixed a lot of these songs. So Pete Hammond made a lot of these songs. But anyway, um, uh, Rick... So Rick was on a family youth opportunity training program and he was paid 40 quid a week. Um, He shared Pete Waterman's flat in London. Yeah. Because Pete Waterman thought he sounded like Luther Vandross and he actually does. He He does does. sound like Luther Vandross and uh, he just thought he was an amazing singer. So I think he worked there for about a year on 40 quid a week. It was hardly anything and he had... You know, Rick Astley there. So he was always going to do a single. They were just looking for the right track. Yeah. And when he went on Top of the Pops in 87, he actually knocked Michael Jackson off the top of the charts. Fuck, is that right? Yeah. So he went down so well on Top of the Pops with Never Gonna Give You Up. But I think this was a secret release or someone released it by mistake to the radio and then the thing just exploded. I can't remember the story, Mm. but... Because he did initially, his very first release, I think, was a duet and it didn't chart. It, it, like, it didn't do anything. Um, but his first sort of solo hit was Never Gonna Give You Up and that went to number one in 25 countries. Yep. That's yep. fucking amazing. It, it, look, mm. I, I remember all of this. It, it, it was huge. It was mm. huge. I remember them playing him on Hey Hate Saturday and... 
like Molly coming out and saying, you know, there's this new guy and um, they, they basically created a star because um, <clears throat> out of the ones that we're going to sort of mention tonight, they're all, they're all sort of largely established in and around the industry, not necessarily as um, singers, but like, you know, performers definitely. Um, but Rick was sort of undiscovered. So they sort of had to create his profile and that's where you yep, get sort of yes. fucking – that's where you get like fairy tales about him, but, you know, being the being the T-boy and they overheard him sort of humming to himself. And yeah, were, that's know, right. Hey, you've yeah. got a great voice, you know. Yeah, like, that's right. Fucking sounds good, doesn't it? But, they, yeah. yeah, that wasn't the case. So, well, um, producer Maddie did Day on the Green – with Rick yes. Astley and Aha and Pseudo Echo. And Batesy, of course, who we've had on an episode before, was the DJ. So basically I caught eyes with Rick and said, hi, Rick, how are you going? But he was a little bit unapproachable, which is understandable. Like they're getting older g'day, now. G'day, you know? Rick. Yeah, g'day, Rick. I love your fucking skivvy. What's oh, wrong with him? nice. Why, wouldn't you? That's like you nice. would have been like real. G'day, Rick. What do you think of these? Yeah. You ever I seen any Australian just, tits? I saw his band floating around. So I met the bass player Jay. It was interesting because I he come up to me this bass player in Rick's band <laughs> and he might have thought I wanted to shag him, and I kind of thought, oh fuck, he thinks well, I want to shag naked. him because. Well, no, I wasn't, but I was like, you know, I'm not going to shake you. So I went, oh, yeah, my husband's in Pseudo Echo. You'll be seeing him. And, of course, Pseudo Echo were on second and, uh, you know, I just kind of shrugged that away. But Jay's worked with Bananarama as well, so he's like the bass player, go-to bass player. I can't remember his second name, but um, he was great. The, the live band that he has, Rick Astley, mm. is incredible. The backing vocals, they do all the tracks and they've got a fantastic band behind him. Um, like Bananarama did on the last tour. The band Bananarama had on their last tour with Siobhan was fucking spectacular and I'm pretty sure Jay's on bass in that band as well. Oh, Wow. I really loved because I watched the Bananarama last tour too and just to link the two together, I think they used the same musos. Like they're session musos in, in England. Yeah. And uh, and we'll, we're going to have to put up the photo on our 80s oh, montage. Oh, there it is. Look, Pseudo that's an awesome Echo and photo, Yeah. They'll it's a never be able photo. to edit you out of that one. You're right in, right in no. the middle. <laughs> you are. We'll have to put that on the 80s montage. Very nice. But I do love Rick and I do love a lot of the songs. I remember the live gig he started with Together Forever, which was awesome and Never Gonna That's Give right. You Up was, of course, the encore, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think he's an all-round fantastic singer and he can play the drums as well. We've seen that recently. Yeah, yeah. Where he does an, an ACDC tune oh, and sings God. and plays the drums. So he had um, – his second big single was – Whenever you need somebody, wasn't it? Yeah, it would have been, I'd say. And that went to number one in seven countries. And that was yep. a recycled, that was previously um, uh, a, a sore hit with Ochi, uh, Ochi Brown in 85. Ochi Brown, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that's something they used to yeah. do as well, as sort of if it didn't quite work, but they, you know, with one artist, and but they really believed in the track, they'd, they'd try it out with somebody else. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, well, Hazel, it was like Hazel as well. Hazel yeah. 
one of Kylie's tracks. But I think Kylie had only released it in Japan, so Hazel wanted it as well. And I think Hazel does a better vocal. I hate to say that, but uh, I I love Kylie. I love Kylie. Hazel's got a better (laughs) voice. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the album was called Whenever You Need Somebody as well, wasn't it? I can't actually remember. I I think think it might have been. And the album went to number one in the UK and it went to number 10 in the US, which is Aussie, great. Aussie, it was big. Aussie yeah, it was, it was big. big. Yeah, I, I, um, I didn't look at stats for Australia, but it would have definitely been top 10 because he was very popular here. Oh, huge. Yeah. Every but Aussie number, had a number copy Number 10 of in it. the US is fucking good for 87, considering all the hair metal that was coming out of... Um, that was coming out of the US in 87 to have like this yeah. kind of high energy track from from the UK. I reckon you know. he was bigger than any of that shit though, babe. He yeah. was bigger. Yeah. He was like, it was it was um, never going to give you up where it just stapled the album. Yeah, you know? that's right. Because it's a time where we didn't just buy the single, we brought the album. That's um, right. Because there might have been something even cooler on it, you know. Yeah. But it just resonated with people. Um, I don't think – I mean, I know Rick sings it now, but at the time I think he thought it was a little bit naff and he got a bit embarrassed by it later on in his life and tried to do jazz or soul and bring his band out. And and it's fair enough. I mean, that's what happens sometimes when you do grow older. It's not about just having hit singles. You actually want some credibility. And it wasn't until we heard of Rick Rolling where the fucking <laughs> thing started to be a bit credible later on in life, you know? Yeah. You know, with hey, Rick Roll and... Rick Rolling got him back onto bloody festival lineups. It did. Lineups. <laughs> it, <laughs> did. it did. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, and I think, the thing yeah. is they would have been they would have been putting him on there thinking, oh, the kids will love it. It's like a novelty. And he would have held his own, him and his band um, would have held their own doing their set. You know, they would have been fucking awesome. The band is incredible and Rick is incredible. He sings so great. Um you just can't fault him live. And now mm. he's come to the realisation at his age that, you know, not much is going to happen. We have to look at the nostalgic Rick to keep the money rolling in, mate, because he's got kids now. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Now, look, unfortunately, a lot of the original recordings from Rick's first album were lost in a massive fire. Um, remember, Sammy, the... the um, uh, one of the studios at PWL burnt down. Yeah, but didn't Pete say someone had it in the back of their car and it was a little um, bit sus? The, there was the thing that he was currently working on and I can't remember if that was Rick or somebody else. Right. Um, but but majority of Rick's originals have gone. They've all been burnt. Um, yeah, and it was um, – it's been suggested, we won't say who by – but it's been suggested that it was like a bit of a bit of an insurance job. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a bit sort of um, a little bit dodgy there, a little bit dodgy there. I think somebody's done something dodgy. Wouldn't have been the first time in the music industry something dodgy's been done. Yeah. Oh but yeah, anyway. exactly. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, that's right. I don't know much about that, but um, I think. 
with Rick Astley, a lot of the stems would have been not just at the studio. I think they would have been everywhere though. Yeah. Like if you're going to put a band together for Rick, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the keyboard player would have it at his house and, and it would be sort of scattered everywhere. So I don't know how hard it would have been to actually get the shit back together again. And yeah. the recordings are already done. So yeah, that's right. They're already out It would there. have just been for live work that I would have been worried about it but um, – he still uses the original stems. I'm yeah, pretty sure from when I because I watched him sound check at Day on the Green. Uh, mm. I was floating around the back, and it was really, really good. Yeah, awesome. Oh, that's great. Now, look, Rick did have some fantastic initial success, but he started being eclipsed by one or two people from within Stock Aitken and Waterman, and one of them was Al Kylie. We talk, of course, of Kylie Minogue, born and bred here in Melbourne. Absolutely. In the southeastern suburbs. Now, I I lived this. I freaking lived this shit. All of Kylie's sort of rise to fame. I lived it. I auditioned for Kylie. I knew her dances. Wow. I knew everything. I met Venel and uh, Richard, the two guys that used to dance behind her with, uh, with Saw. And I knew Cosima, I knew Tanya Lacey, I knew Fiona Rattel. So oh, wow. this was my time where I was clubbing and yeah. being introduced to all these fantastic creative dancers that yeah. worked for Kylie. Because mm. the good thing about the Minogues is they go out and they study shit in Melbourne. They go out and they go, what can I do to make my show better? Yeah. You know, they were very Australian orientated, even though they had this international success. Yeah. Um, but Kylie, let's just talk about how Kylie went over there and didn't know um, anything, like they didn't even know she was in the waiting room. Well, I think Mushroom and um, what's his name? Oh, mate, Gadinsky, Michael Gadinsky. Um, you know, really, they, 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 or her management, I think it was more her management were trying to, um, uh, you know, they, they had had a sort of hit with locomotion. They were like, oh, cool, we'll see how far we can go with this. All the cool stuff with Mel and Kim and Banana Rama, of course, had just come out. And um, they thought, fucking fantastic, we'll, we'll, um, we'll get Kylie in front of these guys. Now, they, had their hands full. Pete Hammond and all of these guys, all the engineers, um, they were they were mixing around the clock every day, every day, just sort of really, really productive. So it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been a, a matter of um, you know they weren't they weren't sort of trying to be rude to Kylie or anything like that. Um, they just would have been trying to finish what was in front of them, simply trying to finish what was in front of them. And Kylie was, she had two weeks off from Neighbours because, mm. they, you know, Neighbours has like incredibly sort of gruelling shoot. And um, she got over there. She spent the first week waiting, waiting, trying to get in front of them, trying to get a meeting, trying to meet them. And then eventually Kylie's... Kylie's management towards the end of that two weeks were like, guys, um, you know we've got to we've got to fly back to Australia. It's got to happen today. It's got you know we've got to meet with you today. 
and they were like, oh, fuck, shit, you know, what are we going to do? And I think they sort of literally sent Ky- – they, they actually came into the studios and they literally sent Kylie out just for an hour or two and quickly, quickly they put together what became I Should Be So Lucky. And yep. um, and the the theme of luck the, the, that they started writing about luck because Ky- because Kylie had 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 a bit of luck with the success of locomotion. So 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 that the, the thought of Kylie being lucky was something that was specifically tied to her. You know, it wasn't a generic song that they like picked out from somebody else and and gave to Kylie. It was. It was, um, you know, that theme of luck and everything was, was um, something that was specifically tied to her. But it just sort of goes to show how talented these guys were because she came back sort of within an hour or two and they had this song put together. And by the end of the day, they, had, they, um, they put the sort of masters down, the master vocals down, and then she had to fly back to Australia. So she didn't hear any kind of finished product until she got back to Australia and it was, you know, it was largely mixed and completed and and nothing like what she thought it was going to sound like. Okay. So this is my story. All right. She was uh, – um, the locomotion was remixed by Stock Aiken and Waterman. It so was we had an Aussie version and a Stock Aiken and Waterman version. Mm. So you would assume after that they fucking know who Kylie is, Right. You'd mm. assume they'd know who Kylie was. She's yeah. rocked up. I don't know how. I don't even think she was there for a week. I think she was there for like two days. Sat in the office and they forgot about her. So she took herself out and went to all the sightseeing's and came back. I don't mm. think there was that much communication. It was Mike Stock that came out and saw her waiting, and said, "Hello, love. What are you doing here?" And she went, I've come to do a single. And Mike was the one that turned around and said, fuck, we've got this fucking Aussie chick and the thing we've forgotten about, we have to write a single now. Right. And it was done in 10 or 15, 20 minutes and then she recorded it. When she came home to Australia, she hadn't heard it and it was forgotten about. No one Mm. gave a fuck about it, right? Yeah. We didn't hear anything about it for fucking six months. It was a guy on top of the pops that rang Pete Waterman and said, look, this Aussie chick, man, I've heard I should be so lucky. Can we make a video in Australia to play at a Christmas event on top of the pops? That's right. So there is two videos where Kylie is in the back of a car and singing. And she – then they put it on top of the pops and then they thought, well, fuck, we got to go with this. Yeah. So they weren't going to give her the fucking time of day as far as I know and that's why they needed to come to Australia to talk her into releasing other stuff. That's right. Because they, they were really rude to her. They were offended, yeah. Yeah, they were offended. I reckon well, they were. It came across as like extremely unprofessional but um, they, they, they weren't meaning to be, you know. They, they weren't meaning to – that they were just so snowed under. Yeah, but I'm not. When you you've got to be unprofessional. Unprofessional doesn't mean you don't mean to be. Like if if you're unprofessional, you're unprofessional. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. if I didn't mean to turn up late to soundcheck, doesn't mean I didn't mean it. I'm unprofessional. Like <laughs> it's like I don't. I I thought that 
had they treated Kylie, they really had to back backpedal there. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I think the song is about them being so lucky, not fucking Kylie, them. Yeah. That's how yeah, I right, see it right. anyway. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've heard these stories a lot but um, I think they were the ones that were lucky in the end. Oh, absolutely. She, she was like their fucking Diana Ross. Mate, she carried them right into the 90s, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I have I have heard a couple of little stories but the thing with Kylie is she was so professional that she would have honestly been sitting there going, God, it's taking a while. Maybe I won't ruffle any feathers. I'll go out and have a look at the, the thing. And yeah. then you're right. She went on to – she just got a plane back to Melbourne. Well, look, Aussies are easygoing, you know. Like she, she – you can't see her sort of going in and causing a big fuss. Aussies just aren't like that, you know. Aussies, oh, yeah, all right. No worries. I'll, you know, yeah. Yeah, but, but she never it, forgot it. I don't reckon yeah, she forgot it. By the end of it, she would have cracked it. You know, she was yeah. just young and yeah, hasn't right. really been a singer for that long. Yeah. But, you know, it's like asking for money after a gig. Oh, can I have that $300? You either know how to ask or you yeah. fucking don't. Yeah. You know, and she would have been you, so young you and scared. You fucking money. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that shit. <laughs> I love it. And I'm pretty sure the management would have rung um, them. Terry Blamey would have – I think Terry was um, – I think Terry was managing her then. He probably would have rung them and gone, mate. But I'm pretty sure it was Mike Stock that saw her and felt fucking sorry for her. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because no one was giving her any attention. Mm. There you go. Stuart Fraser, who was in Noiseworks, who did um, the Impossible Princess tour, rest in peace, exactly, was a friend of ours and he said that Kylie Minogue was one of the hardest workers he's ever met. Now, this is a guy that's worked with John Farnham, Noiseworks, and and a lot of people said that about Kylie. Yeah. They just thought she worked so hard um, as she got older and she does, man, like she yeah. does, you know. But, um, yeah, no, interesting that there can be so many scenarios but we have talked about it before with – Matt Mavis as well, remember when we talked yeah. about it with Matt Doll and yeah. how that was like a rumour and Matt's like, no, it wasn't a rumour. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. She was yeah. neglected. Mm. But then they learnt how to backpedal. Yep. And then they had this fantastic album. Yeah. The next thing they had to deal with was, was talking her into doing especially for you. That's right. With That's right. Because both of them didn't want to do it. They kind was of thought it was a little Was that on the first album that she did with them or the second one? Especially for you. I don't know. I, think it I don't the even know one. if. I think it might have been Enjoy Yourself. Yeah, yeah I think it might have been enjoy, you, enjoy Yourself. Thanks, Mika. Just got brought a beer. Look at that. Yay. That's how I lost the other tooth. Open it like that. Yeah, but anyway. Um. So, um, the first album was called Kylie. Um, it had the hits I Should Be So Lucky, Je Ne Sais Pourquoi, awful French there. Gotta Be Certain. Who originally sang Gotta Be Certain, Sammy? Gotta Be Certain? I don't know. I think it, no one I was that I know of. Mandy Smith or Hazel or somebody like that. Was it that one? No, it wasn't Hazel. Um, okay. I'm not sure if um, Mandy did got to be certain. Yeah. I, anyway, I have no idea. 
Turn It Into Love as well. That was on that first one. Now, yep. Kylie's first 13 singles all reach UK top 10. That is fucking incredible. Yeah. She was like um, Kylie in the UK was like Madonna in the rest of the world. Like Kylie was bigger than Madonna in the UK. Mm. For sure. So there you go. Especially for you, was on Jason Donovan's uh, debut album. It wasn't on a Kylie album, which was probably, probably, ah, uh, uh, yeah, probably, probably uh, the good call. Yeah. So, um, uh, locomotion. Fun fact. Hey, here you go. A couple of facts. In the UK, the album Kylie was the highest selling album of 1988. It was the fifth highest selling album of the decade. That's pretty fucking incredible. When you think of all the artists in the UK, everything that would have charted, that's pretty fucking incredible. Yeah. And um, Locomotion, even though it was a cover, Kylie's version went to number three in the US. And when when Kylie sort of had her American renaissance, which was... Um, Can't, Can't get you, get out, of you my out of my head. Yeah. Um, yeah. They all used to reference locomotion. Like she had yeah. done so much in between. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the Americans were like, remember she had that that hit like fucking, you know, 15 odd years ago or whatever with uh, locomotion. That was, the, that was the reference that they were using to sort of remind people of Kylie. Yeah. Um, well, so there you go. Yeah, no, that's right. It was huge in America and that's how we saw it. But then it forgotten about it, you know what I mean? It Only a couple of the people had remembered her and the, a lot of the Americans followed her around even though she wasn't huge in America anyway. Yeah, yeah. But she, she never toured there or did anything. No. You know. She did all right. But I, she, she charted in the dance charts in the US and she had, you know, she had a, she had a gay following over there um, mm. but just, yeah, could not break the mainstream. Um until later. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So talking of Kylie and Madonna, the mm-hmm. one thing that was interesting, um, when she did Kylie live in Dublin, she came out with fishnet ass cheeks sort of sticking out. I remember I'm that. I'm just wondering if it was Kylie or Danny. I think no, Danny was, was wearing traps. Kylie, yeah. And people accused her of being a Madonna ripoff. Yeah. Um, but in the end... It was just the fashion, you know, it was just the fashion. I mean, she did mini go in bed with Madonna a little bit. I thought that was a, a little bit She funny, did get sexier. She did. But I auditioned for Kylie in about 89 at yeah. Bartuccio's dance studio. <laughs> and it was me and 600 other girls. Yeah. They went with the guys and the girls and about – 480 girls were just told to go home because they were too tall. Because oh, you had to be oh, just the same size as Kylie. Yeah. So there was about 480 chicks just went whack at the door. And, of course, I'm short so I'm still there amongst so 100, 100 all the, girls. All the munchkins would have been like, hey. It was incredible because all the really tall girls just got the arse. They were just 
cut down and, and this is where I remember it being so cutthroat because it was the night before I was dancing at Chase's and Richard and Venall came to Chase's. It was a night called Fat and the both of them were dancing and I think it was Richard that came up to me and said, hey, I'm just letting you know there's a Kylie Minogue audition tomorrow. Can you be there at Bartuccio's at about midday? And I went, yeah, 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 no worries because I was dancing at Chase's. So they always went out scouting for people. So we went to this audition and I think I got down to the last five chicks. Um, it was Cosima, Simone Kay, myself and a couple of other people and I was super excited that I was going to go on this tour. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to go on fucking tour with Kylie. This is ridiculous. And they picked um, Simone Kay and Cozzy. Simmy. Cozzy, Cozzy already sort of had it because um, she was uh, – Cozzy was in a lot of, well, she was in the locomotion with Kylie. Yeah. So they yeah, had yeah. a friendship. Yeah. <laughs> they had a friendship. So that was a really cool time and just watching them go overseas and tour. But I was really wrapped that I got down to the last four people. But Fuck yeah, absolutely. Out of 600 girls. Yeah, well, and then Mitch got the guy. So Mitchell, who's not with us anymore, oh. was also a really good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And he did Je ne sais pas pourquoi. He was the guy in Je ne sais pas pourquoi. He's, that's Mitchell in that. And he was a gorgeous guy uh, but unfortunately not around anymore. Oh, it's a shame. So that's, I think, my experience with Kylie. I think I buy Kylie's music all the time. It's yeah. probably the only artist I really get an iTunes account for, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. Because I do yeah. love her music. Yeah. Now, Kyle's, on that second album that she did with Saw, um, Enjoy Yourself, it's the one where she had the hat on, remember, Sammy? Um, they all wore fucking hats on these album covers, every single one of the chicks. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, hand on your heart, I wouldn't change a thing. Never too late. Yeah. Um, and, and this one did really well as well. Uh, Enjoy Yourself did really well as well. Um, but Kyle's would do a few more albums with Saw right into the 90s. Um, you know, she she had a lot of success. And... and um, they actually sort of they actually sort of developed her sound a little bit as well. It didn't stay. I should be so lucky for fucking you know five seven years or whatever. They, they, her sound actually developed. They did some really cool stuff with her in the nineties, um, but ultimately she you know she she would eventually move away from them, and she remember she tried to go more indie, and it didn't quite work. Even yeah. though I love that album, so do I. Yeah. There I, I, you go. I think I think um, better the devil you know. She was shagging Michael Hutchins, and that's when ah, she became yes. really fucking cool. Like that's I remember right. looking at Kylie, going, "This is a cool chick." So it definitely changed her that whole relationship. Better the devil you know, and then we had stepped back in time not long after that, and that was another banger of a track. Yeah. And that's where I started to prick up with Kylie. I was like, "Oh God, she's so cool yeah. and sophisticated," she, and she, yeah, she just she got, come out of that good girl box. My, Michael um, sort of shagged a bit of. Sex into it, you know what I mean? Like he, she, she really kind of came out of herself, I think. Yeah. No, she was beautiful then. And then I remember her bringing out the, the coffee table book and she had a big launch of that at the oh, Virgin Megastore. I've got the funniest fucking story about that book. Yeah. 
she um she was huge, you know, and she sort of um she she copped in those initial in that late eighties period. Even though she had sh- huge success, she copped a lot of bad press. Look, Stockade and Waterman did like a lot of their artists did, and it was just kind of tall poppy syndrome, really, because they were so fucking successful. Um, they got accused of um, sort of you know playing the same you know, mixing the same song multiple times for all of their artists. and But they had a sound, you know, that they were developing, whatever. Um, but really, yeah, a lot of their artists did sort of cop. A, a, um, they weren't really they weren't really attacking Kylie, but they, they were sort of more having a jab at Saw. Um, it's very – Kylie is very, very likable. One thing about Kylie Minogue, she's very, very likable. Um, and, and so – they weren't attacking her as much as Saw, but she she did sort of have this big return to Australia because she, you know she because she had all the success in the UK. She moved over there for a long time, mm. and um, I remember she came back and I think she hosted the Logies or something like that, which is a, an awards show that we have here in Australia, similar to the Emmys, and um, she. It caused this big sort of um, Kylie renaissance. All all of a sudden, she became um, cool again, and in the in in a similar way to how Madonna released the sex book, although it was nothing like the sex book, Kylie released her own book, her own coffee table book, and it was really camp. Remember? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. my my girlfriend at the time loved Kylie Minogue. Yeah. And um, it was her birthday and we were poor ass, you know, like I was in, I, I was at uni and I'd gone out to a party the night before and I didn't have a car. So I used to sort of walk all over the city going to sort of parties and visit people's houses and stuff. And these two girls that I knew um, had, had just started a piercing business. So we went oh to their God. house. They, we went to their house on the on the way to this party, and they were like, "Oh, we're starting this business. Do you do you guys want a piercing?" And it was literally like, "Oh yeah, no worries." Like we we fucking got our cartilage in our ear done. We got our fucking noses done. Yeah, through the foreskin. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, so we're, we're sort of half pissed, like, coming away with these with these piercings. And I got one in my nose, like, sort of, you know, like Lenny Kravitz kind of thing, you know. And, Do you still um, have it? No, I'll tell you what happened. We, yeah. we um, and I've got a crooked nose, so I've, I've really got no business having a fucking piercing on my nose and drawing more attention to it. So I, I, um, <laughs> I thought it was cool, though. Fucking, tw- you know, 21 or something. I think it was 20. And I walk, we walked then from these girls' house off to this party and I sort of turn up showing everyone like, hey, got my nose pierced, hey! And they're like going, oh, it's awesome and like touching my nose and my ear and everything, touching it all night. I passed out that night. In the morning I woke up and the side of my nose was just like blown up like the size of a oh fucking orange, yeah. Oh my god. And um it was my girlfriend's birthday a couple of days after and she loved Kylie Minogue and Kylie was having a book signing. Kylie was having a fucking book signing in the city. So I was I was like getting getting into the book signing. So I caught the bus, like all like fucking, you know, hung over and smelling of alcohol and shit. 
and got into the city. And this was like in the middle of summer in Brisbane, which is just like fucking, you know. Oh, in Brizzy. Yeah, like 40 Mm. degrees in the shade. And I got in there and um, she was doing it in the sort of Maya Centre, which is just above the bus depot. And and, um, walked out onto the street where the queue was and it just fucking went for miles. So I had to stand like hungover just like hung over and pissed just disgust you know feeling sick because my yeah. nose was fucking infected yeah of course and, um i remember i <laughs> i'm standing in the queue and it's hot and i'm like half passing out like like just just sort of slowly making my way through the queue by the time i got to the end and bought the book I'm I'm within like five or six people from Kylie. I'm almost vomiting like <laughs> and, and and I was just like fucking grey and sweating and um yeah. just desperately wanted to attend to my nose. I was so sore and sort of got you know, they're pushing everybody through and I'm thinking I'm going to have my big moment with Kylie Minogue. Like, hey, I'm a singer too. You know, oh, why don't you come on tour with us? Like, oh, yeah, good one. Anyway, so so like got up to got up to Kylie and she was just like horrified looking at me. I must have looked yeah. like a fucking junkie with this, yeah, you know, sure. grey apart from this big fucking red blown up nose. And um I was just like, yeah, with the book and she signed it and kept you know, kept <laughs> kept walking. But like the look of shock and horror at me, just like ah. fucking hell. Yeah. Do you think did so was your nose still blown up and stuff? I walked with I put the book in my bag and I walked down to the public toilets and I think I I had the sense to buy some Dettol or something. Yeah. And um I pulled the piercing out and it was like <laughs> like all pus and shit came out of it. Like when I pulled it out, it was so disgusting. Oh, my God. It was so gross. You sound like you had an allergic reaction or something. Well, everyone, every prick was touching it at the party. It wasn't all they were touching, but... uh, (laughs) What a way to remember the book launch of Kylie Minogue. There we go. I wonder if she remembers, probably not. You were the guy they were talking about in Melbourne then. Yes, I was the delirious (laughs) prick with the, yeah. Um, All right. Lovely story. Lovely story to throw to an ad, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Now the ad today is very special. Maddie's been trying to squeeze it in for a while and he's also been trying to get this ad into the show. That's right. Um, Maddie loves this ad. We didn't get this one up north um, but Sammy knows everybody, everybody in Melbourne would know it and Sydney perhaps as well, you know. All right, we'll go for it. Have a listen. Have a listen. I want my clothes off. I want my bath. And the water. I want my Mr. Lady. I want my fun bath. Please. <laughs> now there's Mr. Matey and Miss Matey. I love it. Look if at I had that. A kid, seriously, if I had a kid that spoke like that, I'd be drowning him and making it look like an accident. 
Well, you'd have the Is bath to do it in. Is that wrong? Am I wrong? No. Yes, it's very 80s indeed, no. Maddie. That's right. <laughs> it's very 80s. Maybe you could put some red dye in it and. Um, all right, so yeah, that ad is iconic, isn't it, <laughs> Sammy? Well, it's about bath time. There were a couple of, um, you know, bubble bubble bath was a new thing, I think, back then. I don't think it had been around for a long time. Did it? Yeah, I think it Did might it have come, come out, out in the fifties. Fucking fifties. Oh, or something. maybe it was new for me. It was laced. We with couldn't arsenic, afford but it. Yeah, they they eventually took I, that out. Yeah, it, yeah. Oh, does, does, I've do said people that before, do bubble though, about bath anymore with their kids? I guess they do. See, people are more natural now. They do fucking, I don't know, I would. It would all be like hypoallergenic and fucking. Yeah. 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 It doesn't give you Mr. cancer Mr. Matey anymore. didn't last long at all. Yeah. But I, maybe it was just a time where we could afford to get it or something. Yeah. But um, it was just soap and water when I was a baby. When did bubble bath come out, Maddie? 1960s. 1960s. There we go. But okay, I can well, remember. you know what? I would have. What's what year did that come out then? What year was that commercial? Nineteen. Oh, okay. Would have been. Well, the I would 80s. have been well. And sh- I would have been old enough to have a bubble bath. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, right. The, the kid the, wants his flat clothes off. You would never. <laughs> <laughs> you would never get a kid, animated or not, saying it in an ad like, I want my clothes off. These <laughs> days, you, you would not get it. It's, you know, it's not right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> fucking bubble bath. Bubble bath. It's um, not very, um, it's not something they would be able to play today, is it? Oh, God, no. But look. Um, bubble bath was huge in the 80s. I can remember having like Transformers bubble bath and Star Wars bubble bath. It was a big sort of marketing item. It was a big sort it of mer- merchandise item. Especially with Avon. Yes. Oh, yes, <laughs> Avon. <laughs> Especially with Avon. You could get an engine, a truck, a All fucking dolphin, you name it. Yeah. Yeah. I was lucky. My mum was an Avon lady. Yeah. Yeah. How great. Yeah, I had all that shit. Very 80s. There you go. And 70s. All right. Mr. Matey, we finally got it in. <laughs> finally got yeah, it in. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that's what she said. Now, Australian television. Let's pick it up, mate. Let's pick it up. Although it's, it's strange sort of separating these two, especially around this period because they were so sort of hand in hand. Uh, yeah. We talk, of course, of Jason Donovan. Jason Donovan. Jason Donovan was huge. Carly and Jason from, you know, Scott and Charlene from Neighbours. And then they would go on to record, especially for you, which we have featured in our uh, duets episode. Yeah. Um, Look, Jason wasn't the most amazing singer. No. Well, there was just the emotional attachment of him being in Neighbours. It had worked with Kylie. Yeah. So they thought, you know, and she was banging him. There's no doubt about oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. were an item. Yeah. Um, 
Pete Hammond mentions in his book, remember, he said, like, you know, they all knew, no one was allowed to talk about it, but, like, it was obvious Kylie and Jason was together. Like, she was yeah. sort of sitting on his lap and fucking, yeah. you know, they'd bust him sort of canoodling and all that kind of thing. But nobody was allowed. They are all sworn to... to um, secrecy. Secrecy because it would, it made sort of deplete their fan base, you know. They had to be seen to be single and sort of attainable and all that kind of shit. But before they knew it, Kylie was off sort of shagging Michael Hutchins. Yes. And then sort of poor old Jason is like going through this this heartbreak period, like pouring yep. his heart heart out through the songs and everything. And yep. um, yeah, it was it must have been quite must have been quite difficult for him. But look, he look he was very Jason Donovan was very very popular in the UK, hugely popular. Like he was this sort of blonde, tan, tall, good-looking Aussie. Um, they already knew his face from Neighbours, and Harry was sort of um, next to Kylie Minogue um, releasing songs. His first yeah. album, his first single, was "Nothing Can Divide Us." That Nothing went to can divide us. That went to number five in the UK. Maybe he thought he had to put on a Rick Astley vibe voice and that's why that happened. Well, remember they were all copying Bowie Bay. They were all doing that kind of Bowie voice, you know, like, right, let's dance. Yeah. Everyone did wow. it, even Hutchins. Like, they were all doing yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was just cool. I remember my brother he? doing it. I remember, <laughs> I remember my brother singing in the 80s and him kind of, like, doing this gold... You know, like doing this this kind of like David Bowie fucking um, crooning kind of voice. It's so fucking funny because it's so Bowie. Yeah. You know? um, so then they would release Especially For You, which went to number one. Um, yes. And then Jason's following single after that was Too Many Broken Hearts, which yeah. featured him playing the guitar. And I don't think he played the guitar. No. That went to number one. Yeah, well, I mean, Pete um, Waterman was all for Jason Donovan. He loved him. Yeah. And they used to, Pete used to do this little thing called, um, I think it was Hitman Roadshow. Hitman Roadshow, where the kids would pay a pound to come and see a live concert and they'd get a drink and a hamburger for a pound. And what would happen is two pounds they could get extra. Um, Anyway, they would get a drink and and it was cheap as chips and these kids would roll up and they would see Jason Donovan and he tried to make him quite big and make him the pop star he was because I don't know whether Jason really believed in himself that much. It was more Pete Waterman just going, dude, you can do this, you can do that. And it was these little gigs where it cost them nothing to for the kids to get in but what would happen is the kids would buy the records and they made their money tenfold. Back, back, you know. People can't believe that Pete was only charging a dollar yeah. to get these kids involved but all these kids were fucking buying the records so they made their money back in a big way. Fuck. Yeah. So that yeah, they would have been buying the record on top of forking that pound out. Well, that's right. I mean, the pound smart, probably. Pete Waterman. Pete Waterman was absolutely because people used to laugh at him and go, "You're only charging a pound," but he saw the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. 
But he loved Jason Donovan. I I wasn't a super Jason Donovan fan. Yeah. I didn't really buy his records. I was a little bit older here so I'm already going out and stuff and, you know. Actually, I used to see Jason Donovan in the nightclubs in Melbourne fucked off his head and it was not the Red Eagle. Was it the Red Eagle? Red Eagle in Albert Park. No, there was another red something. Something in um, – it was sort of not far from it ah. and it was called the red something and Jason was always there off his nut. Oh, this was no. way before he got he went over to London and got married. But, yeah, but anyway. He's – Jason is a, is a friend of a friend and I've met him a couple of times. He's a very friendly, charming guy. He's a Amazing. lovely, lovely guy. Yeah. Um, and I mean, he he I believe I believe he's sort of um, had a couple of periods where um, he's you know spent all his money, um, and he would have had like decent. He would have made good money from this period. Um, yeah. Ten good reasons. The album Ten Good Reasons. The album went to number one, uh, and then after after sort of Stock Aitken and Waterman. Jason was like the highest earner on the West End for something like 10 years doing yeah. fucking Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream. Cody did. He played Frankenfurter in um, uh, Rocky Horror Show. Not sure what else he did. But for 10 years he was the highest fucking earner on the West End. Um, yeah, I I, and he, and he definitely – yeah. He definitely knows how to sing a lot better now. Yeah. Um. Like I said to you when I watched the Stock Aitken and Waterman concert from Hyde Park, he was probably one of the standout singers. Yeah. Which yeah. is really unusual but a lot of those people had not sung for 20 years and they come out and they're either – they can't remember how to sing or, you know, but it wouldn't have mattered. But I thought Jason was all right because that yeah. was the first time they actually – or that was the first time they performed especially for you. Yeah. Yeah. Ever. Mm. Yeah. Look, he's a nice guy. I know we've picked on him in previous episodes. <laughs> well, picked on yeah. his voice, really, you know. Um, but yeah, l- lovely, lovely guy. Lovely guy. Very generous. Um, loved to party back in the day. Yeah. yeah. He did. Fucking oath, he did. I'd seen him. Now, do you want clubs? Wanna, well, did he have his eyes rolling around his head? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, who, God, yeah. Who wasn't in that time, though, you know? Yeah, but when you're a celeb, you've got to be so fucking careful. Yeah. Especially if you're a clean-looking Jason Donovan. Yeah. You know what I mean? And here he is, he's tripping off his tits. Um, it was an interesting thing to see, definitely. And it would have been right before sort of camera phones, you know? You with me? It was. It was way before that. You can't fuck up now. That's right. You can't. So we've done Jason. Do you want to Who's do next? Pepsi and Shirley? Oh, I wouldn't mind touching on Pepsi and Shirley. Yeah. Pepsi and Shirley were the Wham backing singers. So we had That's right. Pepsi and Shirley. Before that there was DC Lee and Shirley. Uh, yeah, but then we had Pepsi and Shirley. So they got a single out called Heartache and I think it was probably one of the best things to come out of Stock Aiken and Waterman. Oh, cool. It was big. It was big. Um, they did Top of the Pops all the right. I just loved what these girls wore. Yeah. I think what Pepsi and Shirley wore fashion-wise, they just had it going on. 
where a little bit before that, some of them looked a bit daggy, except for Mel and Kim. Mel and Kim always looked great. And Banana yeah. Rama always yeah. looked great. Yeah. Um, but Pepsi and Shirley were probably my favourite uh, single off that Stock Aiken and, and Waterman period. Yeah. Oh, the awesome. Period, you know? Oh, that's good. Mm. Yeah. I thought I'd touch on that because people that are younger wouldn't realise that these two girls were already musicians. They were already yeah. backing vocalists. Mm. They weren't unknown. Wham! had split up and these girls went with Stock Aiken and Waterman and put a song out. Yeah, yeah. You know? Do you want to um, uh, bring up Sonia now? Sonia, well, we have to bring up Sonia. So Sonia was a little bit of a stalker when oh. it came to Pete Waterman. Right. She would follow him everywhere. She was 17. She'd always follow him around when he did radio shows. Uh, he did a radio show in Liverpool and Sonia, her real name is Sonia Evans, would ring him and say, you need to sign me or otherwise you're going to miss out on this incredible talent oh, and I'm going to get signed myself. somewhere else. Yeah, no, she didn't sign say me that. Fucking kill your whole family. She, no, she just had the balls to to actually ring. I think it was the radio station, or she went in, or whatever. And Pete Waterman said to her, "All right, well, if you want to be famous, sing me a song now." And he said, "Sing me Gloria Stefan." Myself. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so they, she sang one, two, three by Gloria Stefan. I'll do anything. I'll eat your poo. Yeah. Well, that was it. So she was live on radio singing one, two, three, Gloria Stefan, and people, the switchboard went berserk. Okay, so this is the first part. And then the second part, a little girl rang Pete Waterman and asked for a request because she'd just been dumped by a boyfriend. And she said, you'll never stop. little girl was dumped by a boyfriend. How old was the boyfriend? Oh, well, she would have been 15, 16. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, like I'm not talking teenage years. I'm talking like what teenagers were listening to Stock Aiken and Waterman. Yeah, that's right. So Everyone. So like it was more that. Okay. And anyway, she said, I've never, she goes, I'll never stop. He'll never stop me from loving him or loving you. And then Pete Waterman had a a light globe thing and went, oh, my God, I've just got Sonia's song that she's going to release. So we talked about that last week, how he did remember things like that. Yeah. So He took little cues from fate, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, which he calls lucky, but I think they're fate. I think that's what it is. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, so she put that song out and she also went on the Hitman Roadshow for the, the tour, the Pound Tour I call call yeah. it, and she hadn't even sung the song or she didn't know the song and Pete, ha- Pete Waterman would say to her, just spin around if you forget the lyrics. If you forget the lyrics, just spin around. No one will know you're not singing it because I think they used to really put leave the vocals in as well. They called it the pound tour because after every show the band would just fucking pound air one, <laughs> right. one at a time. <laughs> oh, God. Ah, it was awesome. God right. bless her little soul. Um, good old Sonia. We have an interview, guys. Um, I did a little interview with Mixmaster and Stock Aitken and Waterman genius Pete Hammond. 
Um, Pete was a lovely guy. We had a good old chat. He was in his country home sort of south of London and um, we we reached him, I, I think it was uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. So um, on, on a beautiful morning, he was in a very good mood and we chatted about his book. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this interview. Um, have a little listen to Pete Hammond. Hello, how are you? I'm great, thank you, mate. Uh, you're still living sort of uh, down south of London on, on the southern end? That's correct, yep, yep, that's it. Oh, nice one. I've um, I've been reading your book uh, for the for the last week. I've absolutely loved it. I've I've just um, it's been the last thing that I've been reading sort of before I've fallen asleep, and and the first thing in the morning that I've picked up, and um, I've I've loved it, mate. It's fantastic. Well, a lot of people enjoyed it. Yeah. It, I what I what I couldn't believe about the the book is how incredibly detailed it is. Your your memory and your your sort of eye for detail is just amazing. Well, you know, you remember stuff. So I remember lots of stuff <laughs> over the years, especially if it's funny, <laughs> or, or especially if it's funny of his uh, of his difficult times as well. You know. Yeah, it sort of it it did strike me that that's obviously a very important. Um, feature that that a uh, a person in in your profession uh, doing music production has to have that sort of element of um ha- having an incredibly finite uh, eye for detail yes well you learn stuff as you go through you know every session you do you learn something new you, you, somebody will push you sometimes to try this and try that you think no that's not going to work and then then you do it and you think, oh hang on it did work in a strange sort of way a bit of serendipity going on you know something like that yeah. Something that happens that you don't expect to happen, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, look, I guess um, when I was looking at your body of work, the, the thing that struck me as well is is basically it's the soundtrack to my, my childhood and I'm, I'm sure this will be the fact for many, many of our listeners and, and many people around the world. Um, you know, you've you've mixed for uh, Mel and Kim, Rick Astley, Jason Donovan, Kylie Minogue, Donna Summer, the Hazel Dean, of course, and and the the um the names just keep going on and on and on. And I guess when you're aware of all that, where that a person is sort of responsible for um, having such a a major part in producing those songs and and bringing them to life, as as you have. You're particularly interested in what they did before, like leading up. Ah, uh, yes. And yeah. I was particularly amazed as uh, with your life as a as a musician bef- before you were actually uh, in the studio. It was a whole other life, wasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was a whole other yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you? <laughs> I mean, it. It. Um, a lot of the stories uh, of you sort of traveling around Europe with um, different bands. Um, they're incredible because I mean, then even even within the same decade, you're you're sort of bringing in huge amounts of money, um, earning earning a, a great wage for yourself and your family as a producer, and it's it's just incredible how quickly life can turn around for you, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it can go from bad to worse, from worse to bad. <laughs> yeah, or the other way around. You know. Yeah. You go up as you can come down as quickly as you've gone up. It, it it's great, isn't it? That that um, I, I, you, you seem just to have an, an incredible work ethic. Yeah, I just get on with it. <laughs> That's all I do. It's just 
someone gives me a job and I, I put the correct hat on for that job and get on with it and, and give yeah. it my best. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. Do, do you? It's, um, not, it's not all pop music. It's, it's, I've done a very, very varied musical career. It's not all pop. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is another thing that struck me. It's sort of, um, um, you know, I'm trying to put, um, I think it was your first number one was, was past the duchy. Yeah. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sort of putting, putting, I, I was so surprised by that because you, you know, you put sort of past the duchy, which is a great song next to say, um, you know, tay, 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 tay. They don't, yeah. they don't exactly go together, do they? It's um, no, they're, they're no, quite, no, it's quite a lot of spread. Yeah, but to me, music is music, you know, and it's all I can I can appreciate every genre. I'm doing grime at the moment. Would you believe? Oh wow! Oh my god, you that's know, incredible! Which is undercover underground rap, you know, with swearing and all sorts of shit, all, all sorts of stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. Oh mate, we yeah. go for it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. But not just that. I'm doing other. I'm still doing some Peter Wilson stuff at the moment. Um, I've got an album to do with a girl called Evangelina. To um, I've done a couple of tracks with her. Um, I've got, um, I don't know, I made a list of what I've got going on. I've just done another remix for Luke uh, for Strike Force. Um, I'm writing with Gordon Pagoda in California. Just finished a record for Jordan Jordan in California. Um, and this Stone Roller project is with uh, featuring the Big Nasty. You probably don't know over in Australia, but he's got a TV show over here. Um, and I'm just about to cover, well, I've just already done the music for um, a cover version of You To Me Are Everything by The Real Thing, which is going to be sung by a couple of TV personalities for breast cancer relief, or breast cancer rather, just charity. Oh, that's fantastic. That's all going on. And the guy from Spandau Valley is playing sax on it. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's all going. Never a dull moment. <laughs> Have you ever just taken a couple of months off? or <laughs> It just seems no, like to you... Be honest, you your level of productivity honest, is incredible. I didn't, I didn't do much between January and March of this year, or okay. was it the latter part of last year? But for about two or three months, nothing much was happening. Mm-hmm. And it goes like that sometimes. You, when that happens, I just sit down and start knocking up backing tracks, you know, which always leads to somewhere, you know. Yeah. But um, all of a sudden, it all started kicking off again when this lockdown thing started. People were asking me to do things again, you know. it's um, It goes like that, you know. I thought I'd be finished 10 years ago, maybe yeah. 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was still going, people still loving what I'm doing. The last artist I, I worked with was Jordan Jordan guy in California. Uh-huh. He said what I'd done made him cry. Oh, wow. He said he'd never cried before. It made him cry, his piece of music and what I'd done with it. Oh, fantastic, uh, mate. When, uh, when, when you're mixing and creating music, do you – do you think visually at all? Like, are you are you sort of imagining things visually, or is it totally just um, composing a mix no, of sounds? No, it's not, not you know? visual. It's just yep. it's just uh, just what comes to mind. What you think? What can I do with this? And I think, oh no, I'll try that. And sometimes, many times, you try stuff and then you badger away at it and it doesn't work. I think, oh, no, I'll dump that idea. And then you, yeah. you try, and suddenly another idea just springs into my mind. What I can do, and it just works like that, really. Sometimes I, I work. I mean, remixing is is a lot more difficult than mixing because remixing you're actually creating the music, not just mixing what's there. 
And as yeah. you know, with Waterman and stuff, I, I did lots of stuff to their records anyway. But there was a lot of stuff that was already there. In fact, a lot of it wasn't used. I used what I wanted. That, that was my always my uh, brief to just use what make it work was the words. And um, yeah. but remixing, you have to create as well. I was thinking as well. You've worked with um, incredible Australian artists Jason Donovan and Colin Minogue. Um, you, you, you've obviously had a huge hand in their success and and their hits over the years. Um, th- that would have been an amazing time. That that particular slot, I guess it was sort of eighty seven, eighty eight, when all of that was happening. It was. It was big. Mm, mm. You couldn't get in the car and listen to the radio without hearing one of my songs. You know, it was. Capital Radio, that's all they seemed to play was our music that we were churning out. <laughs> it seemed yeah. like that, although it wasn't, but it it seemed like it was every every other song was a, a PWL song. Yeah. It's just so brilliant. And it it's wasn't just, just the PWL. It, a lot of remixes were coming in, things like the Time Warp and that. But it's like Bees Around the Honeypot, isn't it? Once, uh, once it starts kicking off, everybody wants a record mixed by me or Stock Aiken or whatever, you know. Absolutely. In 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 light of that, did you have sort of, um, um, you, you know, I, I guess P, PWL and Stock Aitken and Waterman, they were known for championing the careers of uh, a lot of unknowns, you know, like pre, pre, previous yeah. unknowns or, or people at the beginning of the year, uh, of, yeah. of their career, sorry. Did you, were you approached when things really started taking off and as you say, um, you know, you're completely dominating the airways. Were you approached by um, uh, big, big names? And I'm, I'm talking about sort of Michael Jackson, Madonna, that kind of thing. Um, um, well, I was never approached by anybody. I was I was just uh, an oily rag working in the studio. Peter Waterman did all the negotiating. And uh-huh. I, I discovered after I left there that um, people had been trying to get hold of me to do, do stuff for them and, and uh, I was, they were told I was too busy. Right. So, um, by Peter Waterman. EMI one. EMI one had. A, I discovered after EMI had a big project. I forget who it was now. And uh, they they asked me, and Peter Waterman said he's too busy doing a Kylie out Kylie album. In fact, at that point in time, I was sitting at home doing bugger all. Oh, so, uh, is that right? Far out. Yeah, there wasn't much about, and, I, and then I got a Shaking Stevens album to do, which was very hard work. But um, that's right wasn't really my thing either. I'm not a rock and roll, big rock and roll fan, but I like yeah. it, but it's, it's not my favourite. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. You, you put your rock and roll hat on, but that's that was all I was doing at the time, and I could have easily done a nice something else, but he didn't want the competition in the marketplace, you see. There was a lot of skullduggery going on in, in that department. Yes, interesting, isn't it? I've, I, I do encourage anybody to um, go out and read your book. Would you just mind repeating the title for us, Pete? Uh, it's called Get Down Here Quick and Mix Yourself a Hit. My story by Pete Hammond. That's right. That was actually a quote from, um, was it um, uh, Pete Waterman who no, said that? that was, well, uh, you've probably read the book, but it's for the listeners. I was... Um, I had my own studio called The Workhouse and I was very busy and Waterman kept ringing me after he'd opened his studio just down the road from mine saying, can you come and mix some records? Because they were, they were getting through mix engineers like going out of fashion, you know, they just they couldn't cut it. And you had to be decisive and, and, and creative at the same time. Anyway, he, I'd mixed loads of stuff with Pete and, and, and engineered stuff with Peter Waterman before, but I just said, I'm too busy for you. I can't, I haven't got no time. I haven't got any time, correct. And... Um, in the end, it went a bit quiet, so I, I, I thought, well, I don't know, I'll phone Pete. So I phoned him up and I said, uh, 
you just thought, you're still doing any mixing done? She says, yeah, get down there quick and mix yourself a hit. And, uh, <laughs> and that's what I did. Absolutely so, you did. One of, big, one of the first ones that came out of there was Heartache, Pepsi and Shirley, that I did on my own. Yeah, yeah it's the first one I did on my own at PWO, and um, I never even got a credit on it. It was uh, credited to Stockache in Waterloo. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. We were oh, just we were just discussing this, and we were saying how when you're a musician and things are going good, um, you're you're happy. You know, you, you're basically happy if you're able to pay the bills and you've got a drink in your hand, and you, you're you not see, really having me. to worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you you know, a, as a muso and as a creative type, you don't want to rock the boat too much. You don't want to kill the goose that laid the golden the egg. Goose. And no, exactly true. I mean, many times I sort of complained to Waterman that um, I wasn't wasn't allowed to sign the consent forms um, to get my payments from TV for playing on the records. And he said, yeah. no, we can't do that. We've already got too many, many musicians on there. You're already getting paid too much, so shut up or fuck off. Oh, oh sorry. I didn't mean to say that. That's what he, oh, he would say. No, mate, anyway, you can say... You have to bleep what? that out. Bleep, bleep that no, out. No, no, mate, you should hear the fucking language that we go on with in this show. <laughs> <laughs> you are right at home. Uh, yeah. Anyway, oh, fantastic. Funny, suck up or, you know, yeah, that's it. Basically, you wouldn't get, I wasn't going to get anywhere. And he said, we're already paying you too much. Making two or three, two or three thousand pounds a week in the eighties was pretty good cash for anybody. You know? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's good cash you know, nowadays. I, I really think that, uh, the way that you started mixing and the way that you start, you were doing overdubbing, it was going from just, uh, being, a. a uh, a sort of process or or a period during production to being actually like another musical instrument coming in. So so you were you were sort of expanding on that art in a way that was a little bit uh, largely unprecedented. Yeah, I guess I was. It wasn't wasn't the case with every record. Sometimes they were pretty complete. If Tears on my pillow and things like that. Those records were pretty much put together. I just had to make them sound good. Because um, very often they if they mix them they sounded like karaoke versions. You know, you have to make them sound serious, and that's that's the art of mixing. It's, it's a dying art as well, mind. There are very few people out there now because there are no studios where youngsters can go and learn the, the trade. No, There's, that's uh, right. They can't sit and watch engineers working. You know, engineers that have, have learned over years. Yeah. So I do lectures sometimes in in the university universities, and they the kids look at me all starry eyed, and how do you make it sound good? And I start to explain and. They just they don't seem to understand what I'm talking about, and they, they're mm. desperate to learn. Mm. I try and I try and make it as clear as I can. I'm not too bad at that. See, uh, you you seem to love the technical side of it as well, and you actually explain it in the in a way that um, layman can understand it as well. I was I was I, I guess I personally sit somewhere in the middle of being um, interested in the tech side, but I want to know the anecdotes and the magic and all of that as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of people people who've read the book, um, a lot of people just skip through the techie stuff because they don't really understand or even want to understand it. But those that are interested, that's what it's there for, those that that are interested in what's going on um, in the computers and, and on the board. 
one thing that I found very interesting as well is how um, back in the um, – it, it was Workhouse, wasn't it, your, your, um, your first studio? The Workhouse, yeah. Um, how when you were presented with um, – no, it may have even been before Workhouse when you first – you first uh, got some drum pads and you pulled it all apart basically to see how it worked. Oh, and, no, that um, was in TMC. That right. was in Tutti Music Centre. Yep. Um, or, or TMC as it was known. Yeah, I, I, I like to know how things work, being an electronics yeah. engineer especially. So I, I just took the heads apart and discovered it was just a cheap loudspeaker attached mm. to a, like a, the head was plastic. Uh, hard, very hard plastic, almost ceramic almost, you know. Yeah. So when the stick hit the plastic, it produced a, a sharp peak that the, the speaker picked up and sent it to the module to trigger the sound. I thought, yeah. oh, I could send some other sort of sound down there to do that. So I, I started using the sounds from a rhythm box because we didn't yeah. have drum sequences. We just had rhythm machines. That's all like used to get on a cheap organ. Yeah. So I started sending the sounds from the from the, the rhythm box to the, the Simmons kit inputs. And I managed to gate them separately to get the snare and bass drum separately. And so I produced a snare and a bass drum from the Simmons kit, which we laid down and then played along to. So it was early stages of programming, I suppose. All we used to use a click track that we, we generated from, uh, to keep, because most people speed up and slow down a bit all the time if they haven't got a click track to follow or metronome, if you like. Yeah. So we used to get a synth and, and, and make the sound make a, no, it's like a train sound, you know. And yeah. set the tempo with the, with the oscillator speed correct, and then we'd record that throughout the tape, and then play along to that to keep us all in time. So yeah, wow! All sorts of early days of, of stuff, big tracks, and then yeah. since then, of course, we've got drum drum machines and everything now, and sequences. I don't use a drum machine anymore. And in fact, I never did use the drum machine much. Only the Lin the Lin One when it came out, I used to use that. But nowadays, I just program on my own drums. Put just live sam- samples on the screen. Um, I don't actually use a machine to program them. Yeah. It all comes straight yeah. out of my head. It's incredible because it's sort of like the nuts and bolts of um, like the very, very beginnings of all this kind of programming. It's so, so fascinating because uh, it's um, – yeah. You know, you look at how things are recorded these days and it's um, largely... Very repetitive. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. And it's just sort of um, building upon and repeating stuff that's already been done, whereas you you yeah. back in the day and sort of your your peers were still experimenting and, and in a lot of ways inventing a lot of these sounds from scratch. Yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. Yeah, well, especially the, the things we did with the Publis on, you know. Mm. creating all those weird samples. Nobody else could do that. Although I was doing something like that before. Um, on a, I worked on an album with uh, Tony Mansfield and I did an album for New Music. I don't know if you remember them. And we, we created this similar sort of sound to that that um, Mickey Mouse kind of thing on a song called World of Water. And at, at the chorus, people could never figure out how we did this strange voice on it. And uh, I did explain in the book how we did it, but... Um, using a thing called a harmonizer, but in a different way to it's normally used completely. And uh, it, it caused a bit of interest. People couldn't think, nobody could figure out, even today they can't figure out how we did it. No. Because it was really weird. If you listen to that song, you'll see what I mean. It's on the internet, World of Water by New Music. I'll check it out. It's... In fact, if you check out the New Music stuff, you can still hear it's me on those, on those early records, things like Sanctuary and... Um, 
straight lines particularly you know the drummer we had was was really good in fact he's gone he's been sectioned now because he's uh he went a bit crazy because he couldn't be as as tight as a drum machine and it really worried him to see oh wow it made him ill yeah man that's true they made oh, film, goodness but, uh, me. but he was a fantastic drummer and uh he played on video, killed the radio stars, or he played the bass drum because he was so tight. <laughs> yeah, didn't know yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Now, I, I do have to ask how um, the wife Jen and uh, the the boy the Steve Jen are going. And the boy Stephen. The wife Jen's indoors uh, doing a jigsaw puzzle right now, and we're going to go out for a walk in a minute when I finish with you. Um, the boy Stephen, he's, uh, he's, he's a computer IT consultant, well, not consultant, a contractor, mm. uh, and he works for Fidelity, and he's their top man at Fidelity at the moment, and he's leading everything they're doing. Um, his wife also works the same company. She's in the management team. So we've got two two grandchildren now. Fantastic. Their friends say, your granddad's a legendary mix master, Edmund. <laughs> oh, he absolutely is. Uh, he absolutely is. Because uh, to me, I'm just I'm just granddad to them, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's it's um, look, I, I, I'm listening to the tracks, listening to the tracks. Um, I mean, look, all my life since, but especially in the last couple of weeks, you know, leading up to this episode and and this uh, very interview, it what strikes me is just um how how much they still stack up. You know, you could you could release these tracks now and they would still have an incredible impact. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, funny enough, when I went to the um, the Hip Factory show uh, uh, up in London in uh, in the Dome there, um, Waterman was there and they, they played Pepsi and Shirley's Heartache and he said, to me, it still sounds fresh today, he said, you know, and he, he meant it, you know, and, and even though he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. And the snare, look, ironically, it- the snare that I used, the snare that I used on that track, we were doing a track... I think it was with, I can't remember the name of them now, um, the one who did Looking Good Drive, Morgan McVeigh, I think it was. Yep. And we've been listening to the Human League's I'm Only Human, and there's a particularly nice snare on it, and we were trying to emulate that. So I, I got this sound that sounded pretty much like it. And when I came to Pepsi and Shirley, I thought, oh, no, I use that sound, it'll really suit it. Yeah. And and that's what, what made it work, I think. It, it, before that, there was a really dull little snare drum tapping away in the background i made this big snare and um and the bass drum and was sort of it wasn't four on the floor it was buff that buff that instead of buff 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 you know what I mean? but it yeah. it really worked and um it was, i had sort of michael jackson in mind a bit as well when i was right. doing it that sort of thing americanish sort of sound yeah in fact when the first record i did would take that as well i i I aimed it more at America, but I don't. I think I got that wrong. I think they wanted to aim it much more for on the floor than than I did. But I took it. I was thinking of the America market with the boy band. You know, that's what that's what mm. I did it for. And I think if you listen to it, you can hear that. You know, yeah. The, the one yeah. called Promise, the record called Promises that I did with them, the first single. And um, I think that still sounds good. It's not the best of songs, but it still sounds great as a record. You know. Yeah, yeah. So many of them just just. Um are oh, huge sounds and and the um the thing that I love as well they're so upbeat they make you feel great like you, you know your your legacy Pete is um through your songs is making people feel great they want to move and the That's I guess the idea the, of it <laughs> yeah the the vibe it makes and the me feeling move it'll is, make other people move yeah 
Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's, if I can't dance around the studio to it and enjoy it, then it's not good. And also, the, the boredom factor. I, I, I get bored very quickly. Yeah. And if I'm listening to a song, it has to keep coming up with new bits all the way through, a bit like Trevor Horn's the same. If you listen to a Trevor Horn record, every four bars has got something different in it or something new in it. And yeah. I'm a bit like that as well. I like to keep bringing in surprise elements to it, and, or, or new elements, not surprise so much, but uh, that's what keeps it interesting. Yeah, you know, They used to use key, key changes in the old days, but we don't use that. In fact, the record I'm doing right now has got a key change in it at the end, but these days records tend not to have key changes. They just carry on... Um, in the same key all the way, but more and more things are added till you've got the kitchen sink there in the end of the song. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So um, back in the day you did work with our own um, Sammy Hardon, or as you would know her, Samantha Paul. Um, your the, the track that you worked on, um, that actually charted in Europe, didn't it? It went to um, – it was in, Which uh, one? 24 Hours? Yeah, twenty four hours. It did all right, didn't it? Yeah. In, in um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in, a good song, that, yeah. Charts. Yeah, I like Sammy's voice as well. She's great. She's got a very strong voice. She came, over, she came over with Pete Wilson, and she was mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's um, in she's definitely a lot of fun. Know. Yeah, great fun. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic, mate. Look, thank thank you very much for your time. Um, I hope you have it's an, an right, incredible anytime. day. It's um, it's been such a pleasure and a huge honour for me. Uh, it's it's um, you're obviously a, a legend of the industry, and and as I say, you've brought so much uh, joy to people's lives through the music that you've made, and um, a huge thank you, Th- huge thank you from um, all of those people on their behalf. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. That's, that's so kind of you to say that, and uh, I hope everyone is still is still making music for them to enjoy. I hope. I don't think I'll ever give up. No, don't. Keep going. <laughs> Thank you very much, Pete. Take care. See you later then. Bye. Did you talk to Pete about especially for you in the interview? Can't remember, babe. It was ages oh, okay. ago. Yeah. Uh, can't remember. Because that is a fucking really good point about Pete Hammond doing that. What? Because, oh, well, I just watched some footage with Mike. Stock today admitting that he had done that song and then um, that he'd done the whole thing. But from what I read in his book, Pete Hammond came in and did that whole vocal intro and that wasn't really done with Stock Aiken and Waterman ever before. No, that no. Vocal, ah. that, was, that was Pete's idea, yeah. Yeah, he's, that's he's, right. Um, and yeah. mm. And you know what, even Pete... Waterman doesn't even admit that though. So I don't know whether he wasn't told that he'd done that or whether he was just trying to get Pete Hammond out of the scene. Look, although Stock and Aitken did write the lyrics, you know, they, they, they wrote the lyrics, it was Pete Hammond that was sort of um, overdubbing and inventing a lot of these intros and just sort of shaping the songs and they would just basically – send him the recordings and say, okay, make this work. You know, they'd send him the vocal recordings and it'd be like, okay, make, the, you know, just just make it work. Just make it work. That was his constant yeah. sort of directive. So yeah. he just sort of followed his gut and um, 
and uh, did his thing, you know, and and they were they were sort of pushing songs through so quickly that he didn't have time to sort of second guess himself and for things to be going through multiple drafts and that kind of thing. Um, he just had to go for it, get things finished really quickly, get them up to sort of broadcast standard, and. Um, you know, if he had if he had the idea to do something, just go for it and make it as make it sound as good as he could. Yeah, because I think they recorded the vocals in Australia because especially for you interests me the most when it comes to what Peter Hammond actually did. Yeah. Because I know that they got the guide track and the vocals at the office at SAW and everyone hated it. They were like, This is fucking horrible. Yeah. We hate this, and then and then I think it went into the office and it was redone yeah. um, to to the liking of. But I know that Pete Hammond and I truly believe he did the intro to this because we hadn't he heard an intro like this on a Stock Aiken and Waterman track where it started with just a vocal thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Which is the loop of the track. It's yeah, it fucking is. incredible. Yeah, yeah. He, but there's look, no one that actually admits to it. That's all that admits Pete did it. This yeah, is the thing that yeah. upsets me a bit. Look, it's a, <laughs> you know, it is a daggy song, but it did go to number one and it sort of struck, it's not an easy thing. It's it's struck, struck musically, I wouldn't say complex, but it's not, it's not like straight down the line, certainly not straight down the line. So he did do, you know, he did sort of try to make it as artistic as he could. Um, I thought he did a great job with it. Oh, absolutely. I loved it. And and it was the biggest thing of the time. But, yeah, I just really sit here and, you know, like we said in the first episode that we don't really know what the truth is a lot of the time because Mm. everyone has their own scenario of the story. Yeah. Especially with the producers. Yeah. And I just felt that Pete Hammond was sort of fluffed under the carpet a little bit and and this is why they all brought out their own book to tell the truth. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, look, Pete would have been making great money and when things yeah. are going well, you don't want to rock the boat, you know. That's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and, and you know, obviously that's something I brought up with him in the interview. But, look, I hope you enjoyed that interview, guys. Um, it Look, that was a dream for me to speak to that guy. He, he is a He's a legend in the industry. Um, yeah. So that, you know, that, that was huge for me to, to speak to him. We, do, we did have some um, – we did have some delay issues on the day. Um, but he was a you know fantastic sort of patient and very gentle soul. He's um, um, he, he seems like a very simple guy, you know. But he he, he yeah. obviously um, uh, produced some amazing stuff and some massive massive hits, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, he there made a lot of money, which is awesome. Mm. So now we've got we've got one more. Have we? We've got one more. Who is it? Now, this is a big name. This one is a big name. We've talked a lot oh, yes. with uh, yes, Saw and uh, talking about their their sort of ha- habit or their little challenge to themselves, I guess, of uh, creating stars, like taking unknowns and, and sort of uh, creating them, making 
building their profile through the music and everything. This mm. was a case of, um, and I did speak, of course, about this one in the interview you've just heard. This one was Donna Summer. Absolutely. Do- Donna Summer was uh, with Geffen. She was with David, signed with David Geffen. And David Geffen had like... He's a really interesting guy. I'll have to get to the bottom of what made him tick one day um, because he seems to have like very, very sort of um, very emotional relationships with all of his artists. Um, You know, like very sort of, uh, they sort of fought like they were going out. Like him him and a lot of these, his artists, they had sort of very, very emotional attachments to each other. Um, Anyway, so... David Geffen hired Stock Aitken and Waterman to write and produce Donna Summer's new album. Uh, the new album was called Another Place in Time, and it's the one, if you if you guys out there can remember, it's the one with Donna Summer on the front, and she's done up like a geisha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I always used to see that. I always used to see that in the shops and just think, like, Fucking Donna Summer must be fucking weird. She looks really <laughs> full on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, She yeah, looks yeah. really full on. Like, yeah, like yeah. what is going on, mate? Um, yeah. But like, incredible, legendary vocalist. And this was a this was in in a way a bit of a renaissance for her. Um, we've we've popped this one last because Stockhaken and Waterman always talk about how this was their. This album was a labour of love. This was their favourite album that they they recorded with an artist. Apparently it was just like a beautiful, beautiful process and they were really, really happy with with every song that was on the album. Um, A lot of of the stuff that they had released beforehand, they didn't know if it was going to work. You know, like they they would release stuff and and just see how it went. Um, But, you know, it, it wasn't a case where... They would all be on board with the material. But this album with um, Donna Summer, they were all on board. They loved it. Um, she had a, a huge hit with, um, what was it? This Time I Know It's For Real? Yeah. Yeah, This Time I Know It's this For Real. This Time I Know It's For mm-hmm. Real. Um, I also think Donna met, Donna was with Rick Astley at the Beverly Hills Hotel and Pete Waterman was there as well and I think she may have said I want you to produce me I think there was a little bit of that before David got involved I might be wrong but I know they'd had or they'd met up in America because Rick Astley would hang out with Donna because they loved him because he was so cute he was this little white guy that could sing like a black artist and the Americans Um, would have loved his accents and yeah yeah so I think Pete Waterman had seen her at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I might be wrong, but I did hear that somewhere. Yeah. Possibly. But anyway, look, they got to the end of it. Donna Summer loved it. Stock Aiken and Mortal Waterman loved it. Geffen didn't love it. Really? He didn't oh. like it. He didn't like it. He didn't want to release it. He was just like, nah. Like, didn't, didn't like it at all. Um, he would not release it. And it actually caused a massive split and they split from each other. So Donna, Donna Summer and David Geffen went their separate ways. I hear so many of these stories about David Geffen. 
like his relationship with Cher and his relationship with um, Guns N' Roses and like these weird sort of like he's very possessive, I think. Anyway, um, he didn't want to release it and then so they went their separate ways and it was picked up, I think, by Warner. I could be wrong there, mm-hmm. but I think it was Warner um, and they ended up releasing it and it was huge. Why um, wouldn't Pete Waterman put it on his label? Uh, I think maybe because she wanted to go for an American label, and it was oh, Don- okay. Donna Summer. Like she, you know, it was Donna Summer. She, she, I, I, I guess she could have been aiming for one of the big ones, you know. But because um, Donna Summer had a pretty big falling out with the gay community there. Did like she this a was falling re- out? Oh God, yeah. They burnt her records. They Fuck burnt off. all her music. Eh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like oh yeah. Him on the fight, you she said bitch. something. Because she was quite religious on a summer. Uh, like, yeah, rip, it was like it was ripping like all that. the posters down from the yeah. wall. Like. Yeah, so her career like was Crocker, sort of. Like, uh, yeah. yeah. They put Donna Summer. I don't know if you've heard that story where they put Donna Summer's records on and like a, a fire and started burning them. It was like Jesus. all her old records. She'd said something. She was quite religious. There was something there. So for Pete Waterman to take that sort of risk with her, it was a bit of a challenge because she really pissed off the uh, gay community and I can't remember what she said but she kind of didn't mean it but she, she was a bit of a diva. Did. She was a bit of a diva. She was, yeah, she was very volatile And she was well. religious. She was religious. It was like, you know, nothing was ever meant to be this way, you know, like she really had to watch herself. Yeah, right. Maybe it was the religion sort of um – Rubbing up against the gays. The, well, I the, think she said the, something the about the gay way, community you know? that was the, well, it was something she said about the gay community. I'd have to get to the bottom of it, but they weren't her biggest fans there for a good five years. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm maybe this is how this got to a Stock Aiken and Waterman thing, but they soon forgot it, obviously. But there was some big drama. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this time I know it's for real went to uh, went into the top ten right across Europe, like you know every co- every country throughout Europe top ten, top ten, top ten, and it went number seven in the US. Um, so it was a bit of a renaissance for good old Donna, Donna who had had hits right from the seventies all the way through. So there you go. Now, of course, um, the Stock Aitken and Waterman legacy does go beyond uh, the 80s. So we encourage you guys to go out there and check out the stuff that they did release in the 90s, especially with Kylie Minogue. It's really awesome. Um, But we'll let you do that in your own time. Yeah, and we haven't mentioned everyone from the 80s either. Like there was Lonnie Gordon. There was a whole lot of people. But we've just picked the ones that are our faves and, and, and just ones we know about, you know. Yeah. There are some great playlists on iTunes and Spotify um, where you can just type in Stock Aitken and Waterman. They've put all the, you know, they've put all the um, the artists all together. It's a really good listen. It's a really good listen. So get into it, guys. Do we have any shout outs to do, Sammy? Um, shout outs, not shout, that I know shout. of. Let it all out. That's right. People have been very active on our socials in the last couple of weeks. We'd like to say a big thank you to Hazel Dean who shared our episode on her socials. 
Um, that was lovely of you, Hazel. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you very much. And I hope you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, forever we will be fans of Hazel. That was fantastic. But we do have a new website. Oh, we do. You've done a great job. We have a new website, which is going to be so much easier to do Patreon and any any show you want to hear, you can just log straight onto the80smontage.com and it'll take you to – it's a fairly basic site, but it just – it's better than going this and this and it's got Facebook on it <laughs> and the iTunes link and all that stuff. It's well, finally you know, the, got done. The, the point is just to sort of – Direct people to the show. It doesn't have to be over. <coughs> you know, if you're anything, <laughs> if you're anything like some of my older rallies, they think the '80s montage is just the social stuff, the social media stuff. Oh, they don't really? realize that there's a show. Oh no! So they just go on like, oh, I liked the, uh, you know, would you? <laughs> I like what, the what photo of you as a kid. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> And they, they yeah. don't sort of quite get it but. That's <laughs> yeah. probably the truth with our mothers. Oh, my mum knows there's a show but I Mate, don't think your mum does, Maddie. As I said, my mum hangs up from me if she's speaking to <laughs> me when she gets the notification that the new episode's out. I get fucked over f- by myself but recorded and edited. So there you go. But um, guys, look, if you love the show, like, review, very important, share and subscribe. Um, and become a patron. Be- be- become a um, yeah. become a subscriber for as little as a dollar a month. That's mm. nothing. That's nothing. Absolutely. And um, we need some more likes because I'm likes would be cool. Likes on Spotify. Likes on iTunes. Uh, you're a bit shy to like you guys. A little bit shy. But the comments are lovely. Yeah, no, fantastic. It's good to have a little debate with people on, on social uh, socials about sort of this and that. And we're always yeah. watching. We'll always reply. So write in, guys. And, hey, we, we've got some mega fans out there who are on some fantastic uh, subscriptions. And we know you will have very strong opinions about, you know, what you would like us to talk about. Please get in touch and and um we'll we'll do an app for you um you know it's got to be interesting yeah that's right <laughs> yeah. don't say chico rolls of the eighties yeah 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 we're not doing it on your nan again that's right but um we we um we <laughs> oh my god man we could do a show on banana rama if you want us to yeah. Look, we've got heaps of ideas. We can just keep going forever. But, you know, if you've got the opportunity and you want want us to sort of dissect a subject, we'll definitely do that because um, we're all in it together, mate. We're here for you, you know. It's like, like a convo with old mates. So good on you guys. I hope you've enjoyed the Stock Aitken and Waterman double episode. We've loved doing it. It's been a, um, it's been a, a, a massive... Massive lot of work for us putting all this together. Um, and we're, we love Stock Aitken and Waterman. It's, it's been great doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. So And keep safe. Keep safe, everyone, with yeah, the COVID thing as well. Don't yeah, become keep, complacent. That's right. Keep being good. Keep doing the right thing. We'll get through. Everyone take care. Don't fucking Stay panic. home and listen to podcasts. Yeah, stay away from your family and just yeah. <laughs> listen, especially stop in Victoria, people. guys. 
Stop, Stop kissing your family. Kissing complete strangers and parts and people. Fucking listen to, listen to a podcast instead. That's right. Good on you guys. Well, if it's music mateys or cool, cool shit, shit from, from the, the 80s, 80s, we're going to talk about it. Unreal. Unreal. Unreal.